We're closing out a, um, a section of Ephesians chapter 4. Next week, I think, we'll begin a new section of Ephesians chapter 4. A new sentence. Paul writes very long sentences, especially in his letter to the Ephesians. In the United States of America, we have an official motto. It was adopted in 1956. So it's an old motto. It was adopted before I was ever born. I think everybody knows this motto. The motto would be found on probably all of our currency. And the motto is, in God we trust. So it's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. Before 1956, we had an unofficial motto. Uh, It was on the official great seal of the United States. And the great seal of the United States has the two halves, which are on the back of a $1 bill. And on that great seal, uh, as it was at least originally done, and it's still on some of our coinage, was the unofficial motto, which wasn't in God we trust. The unofficial motto was e pluribus unum, which is a Latin phrase meaning out of many, one, or from the many, from the plurality, one. And it's the idea that in uh, the United States of America, who uh, is built from immigrants from all these other nations, these many different backgrounds and types, they were brought into one country, it's often described as a melting pot, and from the many, we are one people. Uh, regardless of your background or where you came from, we, the idea was that we would be one people united, from the many, one. Well, similarly, when Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesians, it's kind of built on that same principle. Whether Jew or Greek, and that would be the big difference, from the two very different groups that were at enmity and had hostility one toward the other, they are brought into this one entity called the church in Christ, and they are one. And that's what a lot of the letter is about. This oneness, why it, is, why it exists how it came to be, and how it ought to be lived out, regardless of our background. So that's what we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. I've got to review verses, which I've reviewed now for several months. But next week, since I think we're going to move on to the next sentence, uh, I won't be reviewing these same same verses, but I'm not promising that. I just don't think I will be. But for those that need a little bit of context to build to where we're going, it looks like this. The unity is especially described in verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the emphasis on unity. And by the way, Everything that I'm reviewing right now when I show you these verses on the screen, there's sermons that are available if you want to understand more what that meant in particular, because I can't start over. But we've already covered that in detail. That's the unity. The diversity then picks up in verse 7. With regard to all of this unity, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this gift of grace, and it's not the grace of salvation, it's this different giftedness we have within the body of Christ. Each believer is given a gift, 
So it's, there's diversity of gifts, but it becomes this beautiful bouquet of unity and that our gifts are different, but it's not meant to divide us into separate groups. It's meant to unite us into one group. I mean, technically, I'm a huge fan of age integration. And, and I think there's a much... I think there's a strength and a beauty when Christians gather together rather than dividing up exclusively in their own little age group and their own little stage of life where they share the same problems and nobody has a solution. I think it's so much better when you're in a group where you've got people that are further down the road than you are and they will teach you things. But it's also true that sometimes you learn from just the youngest child. Because out of the mouths of babes sometimes comes the wisdom of God. And that, that beauty of unity is brought out in the diversity of ages, of backgrounds, of traditions. All of that contributes to unity. So, so far as Paul's concerned, this diversity that he, he mentions in verse 7, he then lists uh, certain gifts to get the ball rolling. They're not the only gifts, because Paul talks about gifts other places in the Bible. But in Ephesians, he starts off this way, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or the pastors and teachers, all speaking gifts, all gifts of instruction. That's where Paul starts. And this instruction is meant to accomplish the equipping of the saints. My job is to equip the saints that gather here with what God has chosen to reveal in his word. That's the first goal. That's the first objective. Then, as the saints are equipped, uh, they are then released for the work of ministry. I'm involved in the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, you're meant to be involved in the work of ministry. And when the saints are being equipped, and when the saints then are, are involved in the work of ministry, the larger objective of the body of Christ being built up is accomplished. So it's this, these three steps. Equip the saints. They're involved in the work of ministry. The body of Christ is built up. That's where we've been. Paul then expands on that in verses 13 and 14. How long do we do this? How long do we have this job? Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's where we were two weeks ago. So last Sunday, uh, Jordan McFarland was here. Uh, two Sundays ago, verses 13 and 14 is what we covered. Now we'll move into verses 15 and 16. And with that, Paul will end a sentence. Verses 15 and 16 read like this. And there's obviously a contrast. And the contrast is especially between this being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and being children. Now Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, there's going to be some hard stuff to understand in there. We'll try to break it down as best I can. But the big picture is this. If you take these four verses together, 
the thing you can't miss is the church is indispensable to Christian growth and life. Indispensable. It's non-negotiable. It's not the only thing. And, and I'm not arguing that if you attend a church, that autom- automatically makes you a Christian. And I'm not arguing that if you attend a church, that automatically makes you mature. I am arguing... If you are a Christian and you are not gathering with the church, you're not as mature as you think you are. It takes God's word, who God's spirit illuminates God's word to Christians individually, privately, in your own devotions, but collectively in the church. And it requires prayer, and it requires the people of God. I, I almost, at this point when I was putting together my notes this week, I almost thought, because I've got lots of books, and I've probably got at least 20 books of just filled with quotes, and I thought, I'm going to throw some great quotes in there about what people have said about the church through the ages. And I realized, I've given some of those quotes before, but I've got so many books, I could come up with new quotes of what Christians through church history have said about the importance of the church. But I realized I could spend, really, the rest of the sermon just giving you these quotes and talking a little bit about them, and I really didn't want to do that. But my point in, in, in entertaining doing that is this. We live in such a day in our, in our Western culture, in our American culture, where the church is kind of treated as this optional thing. Uh, for some people, it's option. Like, yeah, if I don't have anything better to do this weekend, I guess I'll go to church. Uh, for some people, it's an obstacle. Like, you know, my faith, my Christianity, the church is actually an obstacle because of what I've experienced in the church. I'm not arguing that the church is perfect. The church isn't perfect. The church is hurtful. The church has probably hurt you somewhere in your past. Our church isn't perfect. But I also am not accepting the blame of everything that goes on in the name of Christianity through through world history. Some of what is done in the name of Christ, crusades and such. I don't think that's the biblical church, so I'm not accepting that, but I'm, I am owning the fact that the church isn't perfect, and the church does things that are wrong, and yet it is still the bride of Christ. It is still God's appointed means for attaining unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I don't know God in the way I'm meant to, apart from the church. I, I will never attour manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ apart from the church. I will never avoid things like being a child and being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine except for the church. And that's not only a local church, I'm talking church history. I, I've said two weeks ago, I stand on the shoulder of giants. I mean, I have got access to so much of what the church has passed down to me that I can benefit from and read it. And this is what they discovered. This is what is true. This is what the church has confessed for centuries of time. I'm not here to rediscover what God has revealed. I'm here to share what God has revealed. I should probably stop. Starts off with that word, rather. In verses 15 and 16, there's obviously a contrast there, but what you need to know is Paul is not starting a new sentence. Uh, The sentence began in verse 7. It continues through verses 15 and 16. So uh, 
there's even less of a break than what it would seem like because it's all one really big sentence. But he does start off with this rather, and it kind of points to this theme. Paul is instructing the church to cultivate a Christ-honoring pursuit of diversity and unity. That is, a diversity that builds and results in unity. The whole theme of this sentence is the church needs to be united. And there's great diversity in this this unity. And in fact, unity requires the diversity. Because I talked about two weeks ago as well that if if each one of us could attain maturity apart from others, we would be so full of ourselves, we would be so arrogant and prideful that we think we've accomplished so much. And so Christ has uh, designed it such that I need your gifts to grow. And you need my gifts to grow. And so it's this mutual edification and building up in Christ where we need one another. It's designed by God to be that way. The goal, as I've already said, is for building up the body of Christ. It's for attaining the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. But the outcome isn't guaranteed. What we saw two weeks ago in verse 15 or 14, the outcome isn't guaranteed because it's easy to be a child. Just because you've gathered together doesn't mean that that it's not a bunch of babies and children. It doesn't mean that the church isn't being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I think sometimes, my church experience has been long enough and diverse enough where I've been in churches that helped me grow significantly. I've been in churches that did not help me grow significantly, uh, partly because they did such a poor job teaching what the Bible actually said. Because some churches, it was, I mean, I grew up in, in some of my tradition as a teenager where a good church service, and they were big services, like it was a, a large church indicator, and, and the best services were when a pastor got up, and especially some of these guest speakers, they'd come in because they'd trade pulpits a lot, and and a guy would read a verse out of the Bible, and then it would just be, it would be like a stand-up comic routine. And it was so funny, and it was so entertaining, and at the end of the day, I didn't grow at all. But I was entertained, and it was a lot of fun. And those are the guys I liked best. As a teenager, that's what you want. You want somebody to make you laugh, it's funny, and on and on and on it goes. But at the end of the day, I didn't learn anything new about God or His grace. Um, it, was, uh, it was child's play. It was child's play. So Paul says, you know, what we need to do, what we need to accomplish here is so that we're not a bunch of children and we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Uh, Rather, Paul says, here's the alternative. Here's how to avoid these two problems, being a child and being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's, he starts off, rather, speaking the truth in love. What does that look like? How do you attain it? There's one little quote from the NIV Life Application Bible, as I think of where I got this from. It'll show it. But he said, and and this doesn't encapsulate everything, but it's a good thought. He says, worship is telling the truth about God. Confession is telling the truth about ourselves. Counseling is a process of helping people deal with the truth or implement the truth or integrate the truth. 
I thought that's a, that's a pretty good synopsis or good start of what it means to speak the truth in love. As we gather, our songs ought to reflect what is true about God. It also ought to reflect what is true about us. Lord, I need you every hour I need you. You know, our God is an awesome God. How great thou art. You know, salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Our songs ought to reflect what is true. And then we in our prayers, part of our prayers is confessing what is true about ourselves and in our songs. And then counseling, a process of helping people deal with the truth. But it's interesting, the word speaking actually isn't a word that Paul uses. Uh, What Paul is talking about doesn't exclude speaking. It includes it, but it's more than that. The word speaking actually isn't there. Um, What Paul is aiming for is not only what we say, it's how we live and the way we do it. It's, It's whole life integration because... I mean, I was raised, you know, in my Lutheran t- tradition being raised up. You know, they were very catechismic so that we, we memorized the articles of the confession of faith and we memorized certain confessions and we memorized lots of things and we could say things that were true, but it didn't mean it reflected the priorities of my heart or my life or my values. It didn't really affect the way I treated my siblings. It was true. What I said was true, but it wasn't wholly integrated truth. What Paul's aiming for is not just speaking, but living the truth in a holistic way. In fact, that word truth, the way Paul writes it, it's not even a noun. It's a verb. And so lots of commentators point out that if you really wanted to just kind of have a very literal kind of translation, it would be translated rather Truthing in love. Truthing in love. Everything you do reflects a truthfulness that God has chosen to reveal in Scripture and in Christ and by His Spirit. There's lots of ways the word truth is used in the Bible. Oh, this is in contrast with the the human cunning and the craftiness and the deceitful schemes. The church ought not to be marked by manipulation. If I have to manipulate you to try to get you involved in in using your gift to benefit the rest of the body, that's not what God's after. It's to be a motivation of the heart. I'm to teach truly, without hidden agendas, without hidden motives. When I first came to the church like 28-some years ago, I know there were some people that thought things that I would do, like, what? why is he doing that? And people didn't expect me to stay, because nobody stayed. I mean, people, churches typically have a pretty high turnover rate. And so people suspected some of the things I did. And, you know, why is he doing that? What's he really trying to accomplish? And I'm like, look, I'm not that smart. I'm just doing what I'm doing. Like, you know, this just seems like you're teaching the Bible. This is the way it works out. And let the chips fall where they may. And after so many years, people kind of lashed onto that. Like, that's the way we want to live. We want to live with a certain amount of integrity and truth and just find out what God says and then do it. So truthing in love, it's used lots of places. Mark chapter 5 is one. You don't have to turn there. I'll give you the gist of the story. Uh, A man named Jairus approaches Jesus. He has a sick child, 
and he implores Jesus to come and touch his child so that she would be healed. And Jesus, by this time, is very popular. It's only Mark chapter 5, but he's very popular. So there's a large crowd of people, and Jesus is going with uh, Jairus to his home so that he can touch this child so that she would be healed. And along the way, a woman uh, who has had uh, an issue of blood for 12 years says, if I can only but touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And so in the crowd, in the midst of the crowd, she reaches up and she touches the hem of his garment and she's immediately healed. And Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, like, who didn't touch you? Anybody that's close to you is touching you. Like all kinds of people are touching you. And Jesus is looking around. No, somebody's touched me in, in a way in which she has received power because of who I am as Messiah. And then, and then this incident occurs where a woman's kneels before him, and it says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I mean, she'd done it secretly. She'd done it believing certain things, but she hadn't confessed those things. And now she tells him openly, without any secrets, here's what I did, here's why I did it. And she tells him the whole truth. And Jesus pronounces a a, a forgiveness upon her and go and be healed. Because those that have received blessing from God have an obligation to give thanks for the blessing they've received. That's out of Psalm, I think it's Psalm chapter 50. That's one place that occurs. Another place that occurs, and I'm not giving you all the, lots of places, but the word truth is used in a very interesting way in Mark chapter 12. And it's used interestingly here because it's contrasted with the deceptive schemes of some with the truthfulness of Jesus' life. So in Mark chapter 12, you've got this incident. And they, and the they refers to chief priests, scribes, elders, the religious authorities, and they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. It's a trap. They've got a hidden agenda. It's scheming, it's plotting, it's plan- It's not genuine, it's disingenuous. So they're trying to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true. Your life, what you teach is with integrity. You don't have any hidden agendas. And so they think they're going to trap him by getting him to honestly answer a question. You do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. You're not doing it to promote yourself. You're not doing it to get at us. You just teach God's word, truly. So the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And they think they've trapped him, and you probably have heard the story. That's not where I'm teaching, so I'm not going to belabor it, but Jesus answers... He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar's coin. If he wants to tax you that coin, render it back to him. It's his. And render to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What bears the inscription of God? Where's God's image? It's on you. It's on me. I'm the image of God. If that coin which bears the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar, then I belong to God because I bear his image. 
And they marveled at Jesus' answer. Because he taught truly. He wasn't trapped in spite of their schemes. Jesus is saying our lives ought to be lived in such a way that they're lives of integrity and they're in accordance with truth and we're not manipulating a situation or people to try to achieve a certain end or a certain place of advantage for ourselves. So there's obviously two opposite errors. You've got truth and love. Probably most people here, probably most people here have, have erred on both sides. But probably, it's also true, most people here tend to err more on one side than the other. Uh, you can be very devoted to truth. Uh, John Stott, who I've quoted before, but I didn't actually put him in my, on the screen, but he has a pretty good quote. He says, Thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes... They are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles ripple. And the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love. But in order to do so, are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of salvation. I mean, everybody, God's going to sort out good Christian people that err on one side or the other. I'm not here to judge, but if I were to give you an example, and they're both good people, you know, by any measurable standard, they're further down the road than I am. But MacArthur probably doesn't err too much on the side of love. If he errs at all, it's on the side of truth. But he's a defender of faith. He's a defender of truth. So that's a good thing. But his danger is that he's so devoted to the truth that sometimes he, he does it in a way that might hurt people that ought not to be hurt. Now, John J.I. Packer was more on the side of love. He, he was very devoted to truth, but he kind of struck up this, this harmony, this agreement with, with the Catholics and things we can agree on. That didn't seem wise in light of the whole church split over are we justified by faith or not? Is it faith plus works or is it just faith? But... J.I. Packer, he was more of a loving individual. He wanted to build bridges where he thought bridges could be built. So in that case, there was a little bit of disharmony between a guy like John MacArthur and J.I. Packer. But both, I, I have every reason to believe are in the kingdom of God, and I'll let God sort out what should have been said or what not should have been said, what should have been done and what not should have been done. Uh, that's for God to decide, not for me. I'm just trying to give you some examples. You know, this guy, the person on the side of truth, oftentimes forget to, forgets to examine their own heart and life before they ever try to fix everybody else. You know, I, I think when we were in James, I made the point that got myself, uh, you know, in some podcasts or, or in some uh, blogs, you know, that God doesn't give somebody the gift of criticism. He just doesn't. God doesn't give somebody the gift of correcting and fixing everybody else. He just doesn't. You know, there is, the Bible teaches this principle of before I speak to somebody else correcting what is wrong about them, I should start with myself. Because you know what? I'm not a finished work. And I've got problems too. And so when you do approach somebody, it's done in a certain spirit of meekness and humility, recognizing, look, we are all kind of broken and we all are, are working our way 
by the grace of God, into being the kind of people we need to be. None of us have arrived. The, the opposite side is somebody who, who never sees a problem. You know, never, he doesn't want to stir up trouble. He doesn't want to address things. He runs from it. He hides from it. So he just doesn't see problems. Somehow, Paul is saying we've got to be truthing in love. We've got to be pursuing truth. But we've got to do it in love. Both are required. Both are necessary. He says, truthing in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Maturity in the body of Christ as a Christian doesn't mean you become independent. You don't become independent of Christ. You don't even become independent of the church. Growing up means that we are growing up in Christ. Growing up where we recognize the value of one another and the value of Christ our head. Let's keep going. Paul says, speaking of Christ, so if I back up again, we've got uh, growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, in reference to Christ, he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, that's the hard part to understand. So I'm going to start off by giving it to you from a very easy translation of the Bible, the New Living Translation. And it renders what I'm showing you on the screen from the English Standard, it renders it this way. He, speaking of Christ, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So the point in both of those renderings is that he's, he's highlighting the importance and the contribution of every Christian. There is no Christian that is irrelevant to the health of the whole. Every Christian has a part to play. He's clearly highlighting that, that it takes all of us together to grow up into the church that we are meant to be. Now let's break it down. He starts off, or in this middle part he says, it happens when each part is working properly. That when is, is actually a preposition. It, it means in the Greek, it's according to. According to. And it's a preposition we've dealt with before, in the Greek, because it occurs so often in Ephesians. And basically, it's describing a relationship. In other words, this thing is true. And if you remember, I think I quoted uh, McLaren, Andrew, Alexander McLaren, or is it Andrew McLaren? McLaren, the guy back in Spurgeon's day, uh, he said, whenever you see this according to, it says, this thing is true, now let's trace it back to its source. Why is this thing true? Trace it back to its source. So let me give you some examples. In uh, chapter 1, this is the first time it's used. Back in chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. Well, how did that happen? We'll trace that adoption back to its source, according to the purpose of His will. It was God's purpose that resulted in this adoption as sons. You trace it back to its source. In chapter 1 and verse 7, you've got the same thing. In him, we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our sins. Well, how did that happen? Trace it back to its source, according to the riches of his grace. If our God isn't gracious, we don't have the forgiveness of sins. And we don't have redemption. You just trace it back to its source. You could keep doing that. There's more references than what I have on the board, but we're in chapter 1. Go to verse 11. Verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having having been predestined. Trace it back to its source. According to the purpose of him who works all things. According to, going back even further, according to the counsel of his will. And on and on it goes through Ephesians. All these according to's, it's saying, this thing is true, now let's trace it back to a source. Why is it true? So, in this particular case, Paul is is observing something. He's got the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's an observable reality. But that reality requires each part working together. There's technically two causes. The first cause, back in verse 15, is is Christ is the head. He's He's the reason why we have a body. If we are ever to be as united and grown up in Christ as we ought to be, it's because of Christ, back in verse 15. But a secondary cause is it requires each part working properly. For us to be the church, Christ wants us to be, it requires each part playing their part for the unity and the development of the whole. He uses that word properly. Some Bibles don't have the word properly. Some Bibles have the word in measure. In measure. And that's a good word. In chapter 4 and verse 7, In chapter 4 and verse 7, I'm in the wrong book. Chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. How is it that you have been graced with a certain gift that will benefit the body? Well, trace it back to its source. It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you have a spiritual gift, and if you're a Christian, you have to have a spiritual gift, If you have a spiritual gift, it's because Christ has measured out that gift to you. He's given you that gift for the benefit of the body. That's why he gave it. That's very clear in in, uh, 1 Corinthians as well. It kind of reminds me of what you read about in Matthew, though it's a different situation, where a master uh, dispensed talents to his servants. One guy got, I think in this particular case, he got five talents One guy got two talents. One guy got one talent. But gifts are dispensed. Resources are dispensed. And each one is to do it to the benefit or to the glory of the master to enhance the master. And you remember the one guy who's got, he doesn't have as much as the others, but the one talent he has, let's call it a gift if we put it in Ephesians language, the one gift he has, he never puts to good use to the benefit of the body doesn't look well in the parable that Jesus teaches. So I think there's some difference as well between Jesus talking about it in the context of the kingdom of God and Paul talking about it in the context of the church. But the principle would be the same. Whatever Christ has measured out to you, 
whatever Christ has measured out to me is not to be hidden away, it's to be put to good use. By the way, this word uh, measure, which in Greek would be translated out metron, we get an English word from that. It's a metronome. That comes exactly from this word. A metronome, now I'm not a music guy, but John, who played bass guitar, my son, you know, he had a metronome, which went back and forth like this, and it kept time. And if we, were, if we consider the church a symphony, uh, an orchestra, and the metronome tells each part when to come into play so that it winds up being beautiful. It's not like everybody bring your instrument from home, and one Sunday we'll just, boom, just play whatever you got. You know, you need somebody to kind of keep it all in, you know, come in at the right time. How, when, and where? How loud? When not? You know, and it becomes a beautiful thing when everybody's in measure with, with what God has dispensed, what Christ has dispensed. The church is meant to be this beautiful thing where we're not in competition with one another. We're loving and appreciating the diversity of gifts that we have and together it is so honoring to Christ. That's what Paul's after. That's the word metronome. So how's the progress measured? How are we doing? The progress is measured by what he says here. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul could have said it's measured by the body growing so that it builds itself up in knowledge. And he wouldn't be wrong. Because if you're maturing, you're understanding and knowing more than you did before. That would be true. But for the most part in Scripture, the ultimate standard that Christ and the prophets and everybody keeps going back to is love. Because whatever I think I know, if it doesn't cause me to love my neighbor better, I really don't know anything at all. If whatever I can confess as true and right doctrine doesn't cause me to love God and neighbor more, I'm wrong and I've deceived myself. True doctrine always leads to love. The two greatest commandments. Jesus is the one who said these are the two greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you can't do that apart from a certain knowledge and a growing in knowledge and understanding. But it's measured by your love. Not, by what, not that you can ace a quiz, an entrance exam into the kingdom of heaven. It's measured by your love for God and your love for one another. Let me illustrate this. It starts off. And I got this from an old sermon from the probably early 1900s, about 100 years old. When you're a child, the kind of book you want to read is a very simple book. It's really just pictures. You can't even read. When you're a small child, you can't, even, you can't read the words. They're there for the parent in case they get it wrong because the parent wants to get it right. You know, this is a panda. This is a cow. But when you're a child, you, all you're really interested in is the bright, colorful pictures. And this book has very thick pages because children are kind of rough on books. And that's how you grow up. And, and the guy I read likened that to when you, you know, somebody who goes out in creation. They can look at the handiwork of the heavens. 
the stars of the sky, the mountains, the valleys, the forests, and they can say, what a God! And they're right. Those are pictures. But eventually you've got to grow up beyond the pictures. Eventually God doesn't leave people on a golf course to say, you know, I worship God on the golf course. Eventually God takes them out of the golf course. And they need to grow up, and so they advance to something that Something more like a beginner's Bible. It's still got pictures, but it's got more than one word. And maybe if you're a, a small child, you're still kind of drawn to the picture. That's the most interesting part. But there's words there. And as you're a child, you're growing up, you start reading the words. Or maybe your parent or somebody's reading those words to you and the story's developing. And you've still got the pictures, but it's getting deeper. You're understanding more. Now it's not just the starry heavens. You understand how God created the world in, in six days and on the seventh day he rested and how God did it and the development. And it becomes a more beautiful picture and you're able to love God more because you understand God more. You understand what he's revealed better than what you did by just looking at the heavens yourself. But then eventually there comes a time where you have to investigate further. And you don't need the pictures you can, you can look at what God chose to reveal in inspired word by the prophets, without error, infallible. For all of life and godliness, it teaches me what is true about God, about myself, about sin and salvation. And it doesn't mean illustrations and pictures are bad. I just used some. But you're drawn to something deeper so that you can love God more and so that you can love other people more. That's development. That's what Paul's after, is he's trying to instill this in the Ephesian church to start with them and for, for uh, churches in general beyond that. What are your comments and questions? Sarah. Yeah, I mean, my pastor, my mentor in Ohio taught me churches for saints, not ain'ts. It doesn't mean unbelievers can't, come to a church service, because hopefully they'll be convicted by what God says in his word, but it shouldn't be catered to unbelievers. The church is for saints, not ain'ts. That's the way he put it. And really, my ministry is largely structured after the way he taught me, because I, I really was built up and grew there. Let me transition to the Lord's Supper. Uh, so this whole idea that...